Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Scott Smith. We talk about his experience being homeless and how to heal racism with love. You're going to love it. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. Welcome on the on the show. So you're a friend of my producer and he's, he's telling me how much of a powerful story you have. So I'm curious about, tell me where it begins, the, the height of it and the how got you to where you are now? Well, Lucas, first of all, thank you. Um, as I was mentioning before, this is this is an honor, man. I, I don't often tell my story because, first of all, I have to select which one. Everything is in phases. I've got like chapters. <laughs> I'm here for it, man. That's what I want. I've got chapters, but um, man, from from the beginning to now, if you're asking, it would have to start. And I'm going back way, way a long time ago, but my story starts before this on some parts that we'll get into, but my, I I lost my birth mom when I was 12. And for us, it was a huge deal because, um, her in-laws decided since my, my father, he made decent money back in the day. Um, they decided that they wanted to take us and claim us so they could get the money and just a lot of in-law type stuff. And so we were dealing with the death. And since I was the oldest child, oldest of five, we were dealing with the the death and having to move and being stripped from my dad, who was my best friend at the time. And I mean, from fishing buddies and everything and moving out there, I ended up with some, it was trauma but I dealt with it differently probably than most people because I think that my dad was such a strong figure in my life and I just watched his attitude with the whole thing. It gave me strength. And so I just modeled what I saw. I mean, to this day, he's my hero. He'll be 80 years old uh, this coming Monday. And um, so what, what were you doing at that time to, to not be so traumatized during that time? The thing that, that kept me the most was to continue to tell myself that, and I, I grew up a person of faith, a kid of faith, grew up in church and everything. And that verse that says all things work together for good. And for me, it was just that hope that no matter what we were going through, number one, every cloud has a silver lining. So I can find some good in this. For me, that good was since I love to fish where we ended up moving to, even though we didn't particularly like the situation we were in, I could lose myself in the fact that there were three ponds and I could go fishing every day. So just to get away from it and deal with it as it came as a 12 year old, that's all you can really do. Um, The problem is at 12 years old, moving out where we moved out in the country um, in Wentzville, Missouri, um, it's, uh, out near St. Louis, um, nothing but farmland and country and things like that. We also dealt with a lot of racism, mm-hmm. you know, as a young 12 year old, super, super skinny, uh, small, uh, black kid moving into basically an all white population, everything mm-hmm. just, and I got hit with a lot of things that kind of were foreign to me because where we grew up. In Kansas City, where I'm from, my house, where my dad lived, was next door to my grandmother on one side, my aunt on another side, another aunt and uncle up the street. And the entire one side of the street was all my family. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty cool growing up, cousins and just playing, you know, things like that. 
going to a school that before a lot of segregation because I'm I'm pretty old. I'll be I'll be 59 in October. Mm-hmm. So growing up right before they started a lot of the busing type things and during that time but it hadn't reached where we were yet. Um everybody that I knew was like me. Everybody that I went to school with, all of my teachers, everyone. So moving out there and dealing with that was a shock to the system. Well, my father also wanted us when he finally fought in court and everything like that after my mother passed away and he was able to get us back. And I remember seeing the car drive down the dirt road coming to get us and just being overjoyed like we're going back home. When he got us and picked us up, I kept thinking home, things are going to be different, but it wasn't the same home. We ended up moving. My father wanted to give us everything that he could as far as a better place to live, better experiences. And so we moved into um, an apartment first to get us into a better school district. Um, he ended up meeting and marrying who someone who I can't imagine her not being my mother mm-hmm. that adopted. It's just a really strange situation. It's like, I'm not glad my mother passed, but I can't imagine this woman not being my mom. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a kid growing up, compartmentalizing all of that stuff. And every once in a while, it kind of comes back and it's overwhelming because I feel like I didn't give myself an opportunity to grieve because I had to be like my dad. I had to be strong. I had to put that stuff away, focus on all of the good positive sayings and the good positive things that he was saying and the good positive things I heard in church. Never got really a chance to grieve. So every once in a while, it kind of comes back. And even to this day, I've learned to allow that to happen. And to allow, even though sometimes it's overwhelming, Mm -hmm. just to allow it to happen, get it out, deal with it, experience it. And sometimes afterwards, I'm kind of glad because literally when it comes rushing back, I remember my birth mom. I remember the, the, the walking up to the bus stop and my first realization that I was black. Um, <laughs> when I say that, I mean, you know, growing up and then the, with the busing situation and moving and they would bus the, the kids from the inner city out to one school. And the, and, and so my dad was like, well, I still want you to go to school with some of your friends. So he moved out into the neighborhoods and so we could be bused in for high school. But I had to go to school before going to that high school. I had to go to the school with the kids out in the area where we were and first day of school when I say I realizing being black walking a third of a mile up to a bus stop with all my books remember it like it was yesterday it's so clear and the first and last time that I ever got beat up um, <laughs> because I didn't I wasn't a fighter you know I didn't I didn't want to fight and these kids kept egging me on and saying he said this about you you're gonna do that and you know how kids and he said that and the kid looked at me and he came at me and so we're fighting and I was a strong kid. You know, I was on a farm for a little while. We, and so, so, you know, I kind of hit him, knocked him down. I'm like, okay, the fight's over. I won. Everybody cool. Everybody cool. The kid tackles me, wails on my face. I'm laying on the ground and I'm, I don't remember it hurting. I just remember thinking, what is going on here? And I'm calling for all of these friends, all these other people at the bus stop who didn't necessarily look at me. And I'm like, guys, help. Why is he doing this? And then he picks me, my shoulder, uh, my coat, drags me across the street. My books go everywhere. They're all laughing. And I'm thinking, this is insane. And so I'm gathering my books together. 
and the bus comes. All the kids get on the bus. I look up at the bus driver. I'm getting my books. The bus driver just looks at me, shakes his head, closes the door and drives off. I thought, where am I? It was that point. I was like, what is going on? So I walk back home because I didn't know how to get to the school. I don't know if it was intuition or what, but I remember my mother standing on the porch when I was coming home and uh, tears in my eyes. And I stand on the porch and she's like, what's wrong? And I just remember hugging her and saying, nobody loves me. <laughs> what is they don't love me. Nobody loves me. And from black, I don't remember anything from that point. But later that evening, when my mother told my dad what happened, and he was a supervisor over sales for AT&T, and he comes home, and that was the first discipline that I received. I'll say discipline. I don't know if we can say beating. But I got, I got taken downstairs to what they call the woodshed. Mm -hmm. And because my father, being this, you know, and I'm supposed to be like him, you don't allow people to do that to you and treat you that way. So... He chastised me and told me that I will never come home telling him that I got beat up again because he had heard, you know, that I got drugged across the street. And I guess he was embarrassed. I don't know what was going on. I just knew that I didn't want that to happen again. <laughs> so he's like, I want you to go to school the next day and I want you to ask that kid if he said those things about you. And if he's got the gall to say yes, I want you to handle your business right there. This is no, my, I'm a PK. My father was a preacher, but this is before his preacher days. <laughs> so, so I didn't want to deal with his wrath. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I'm told. And so I went up there. Sure enough, the kids said yes. And we got in a fight. It was a little bit different turnout this time. And from that point forward, though, it was an expectation for all the kids to try to taunt me. So I got called every word and name in the book on a, I got in a fight probably twice a week. And my father would always be down at the principal's office. He was in sales and a new, good negotiator. So I never got suspended from school ever in my life. They'd send me back to class and I'd go back. But it was just that whole life of, and it scars you because you're thinking, what's going on? Why are people doing this? And so I started to develop an attitude toward people. And so when I say, and it extends, I mean, I've got stories, but it, it extends even through adulthood. So when I say that, I told you earlier that it's forgiveness for me, forgiving myself for the way I did things and for for not approaching things the right way so I can move on, but also forgiving other people. Because in all the other things that I that I've experienced, I truly, truly believe that there are more good people in the world than bad. (laughs) You know, I believe that. And I believe that even in people that we would call, quote unquote, bad, I believe there's good in them. And I will continue to believe that. And so I think sometimes that might be why I get taken advantage of. And my, as my wife says, run over. Um, I don't consider it being run over. I just consider it what's important. And for me, what they think about me is not important. Um, what I can do for them is important and how I can help them and maybe be an example to them is important. Um, even if I come out on the short end of the stick sometimes, I think it's still important for me to take the high road. You know, and to do everything I can to be example. If one person comes out thinking that, you know what, that guy's pretty cool. I mean, the elephant in the room, that black guy is not like I thought people are, mm-hmm. you know, um, and for me, that's the thing. So to, to answer your question, where I am now. So I started out as a fitness trainer. 
um, in my career. And the reason I did that is because nobody thought anything different about an athletic black person. You know, I could, I could get a job as a trainer, work in a gym. Nobody would, you know, no second thought. It's like, I, I worked for a little while uh, as a salesperson and, um, in a company when I first started and the things that I received there and people said, you know, there's no other black people here, you know, and maybe they were, there were some issues with it. Maybe there wasn't, I don't know, but because of some things that I experienced in the past, I allowed that to kind of poison my thinking towards working in corporate America. Mm -hmm. Um, just because of some history. And so, but working in the gym, that was easy. Um, I could sell, I could do whatever. I could get my body in shape. I could get a free membership at a gym, work out. And nobody thought twice. I mean, because yeah, black people do have muscles and black people do play sports and just all of these biases and things that people have in their heads. So I did that forever. Um, I've been now my fallback, even if I was ever working on another job, I've always had clients online or offline, uh, in person. I've always had boot camps going on. So I technically can say I've been a trainer for about 40 years um, because it's something always to fall back on. But that wasn't the path I was supposed to be leading. Mm-hmm. And turning back around now and looking at where my life has come and what I was supposed to be doing, it's actually kind of like I was a mouse in a maze. And here's my starting point. Here's my end point. I'm supposed to go through this maze and make the right turns to get there. But I've been doing one thing, thinking that was the right place. And then when I get to the end, I find out it's a, it's a wall. Mm-hmm. And then everything I've tried has never worked unless I go in the vein that I'm going now, which is to help people. So right now, I'm just using a lot of my experiences, a lot of the things that I've been through, a lot of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about to help people understand Diversity, um, equity, uh, humanity, um, and to take a, uh, out of my wife's book, she said that I'm so nice and I'm so giving, I got to figure out a way to make some money. And I thought the money will come. And I've always thought that it's not about the money so much as it is helping people. But we've ended up in a situation so often where I've leaned so far into that and now I have to remember what happened to my last relationship. I've leaned so much far in, so far into that that I have to remember, Scott, it's okay. It's weird to say this. It's okay to take care of your family. It's okay to say no to some other things that are going on on the outside so you can really take care of your family. It's actually the right thing to do. And is as strange as that sounds for me, it was a really big deal because I honestly believe that me giving of myself and giving of myself and giving of myself was a way for me to not focus on myself. If I'm always helping other people, I don't have to look in the mirror. You know, if I'm always giving and giving and giving, I actually was uncomfortable to receive things from people because of the focus was on me. And that's even in my relationship with my wife. I'm, but whatever I do, if she's doing something for me, I feel guilty. Um, like I should be doing more and just have to get over that. You know, it's, um, it's a long road. It's a long road that I've come down. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's a, I'm curious as to 
how you perceive your childhood and your experience with racism, with, you know, getting bullied for not fitting in. How does that lead to some of the issues you deal with now of feeling like you maybe want to like give all the time and make people happy in some way? Like, do you feel like that stem from your childhood experience in some way? I do. Um, well, not just childhood experiences. My life experience has been that. Um, I don't want, and this is a message. <laughs> this is going to sound funny, but weird, but this is a message to all white people. Black people don't think that you own slaves or your parents own slaves. We don't think you're responsible for slavery. And I have to tell people that because oftentimes when I start talking about diversity and racism, people get this wall because they feel, I don't know if it's guilt. I don't know what they feel. And I don't want to assume anything, but they, I feel like there's this resistance. And I think to myself, why in the world would you be resistant to me evangelizing about everybody getting along? So when I use my experiences from childhood all the way, and it's constant, man, I'll tell you a funny story. Well, too, um, when I was out of a job and I wasn't making enough money during the personal training phase and I needed to get insurance and things like that because my son, um, who had gotten ill, I needed insurance. I remember going to apply for jobs and other people were sitting, employees are sitting there and when I walk in, the receptionist puts her purse under the desk. Now, she just might have decided to put her purse under the desk. But because of the effects of my childhood and the things that I've experienced, in my mind, I'm thinking she did that because I'm black. Not a big deal. Driving down the street, going 65 miles an hour. I pulled up to next to an older white couple while we were driving. And I looked over. Because the tra traffic was kind of slowed down. I'm in my car. I looked over and she locks her car door. It was the strangest thing in the world to me. And after a while, I thought maybe she just forgot to. My wife's like, she said, I'm naive. So <laughs> I was like, well, maybe she just forgot to lock. I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Maybe she just forgot to lock the door. Well, the thing that made me really make a shift. And decide that I really want to let people know that there's another way to live and another way to treat each other, a better way. I applied for a job at a company that will go unnamed. And I was going to be the director of sales. Uh, with my experience, they, the CEO and the vice president of sales absolutely love me. Um, I actually talked about this in, in my book. They absolutely love me. And so they were interviewing me. Asked me lots of questions, how I would deal with things, how I'd respond, looked at my track record, just looked at some of the things that I'd written and guides that I'd written on sales to train people. They hired me to be the director of sales for this company. Um, I had a start date, which I think it was on like a Monday or Tuesday. So I had a few days. That Monday when I showed up, they brought me back in the office, the, the CEO and the vice president of sales, and they wanted to rescind the offer because they had members of their sales team who were making lots of money at the time that did not want to work for a black person. And they literally told me, I mean, they told me this hindsight's 2020. They're like, you could have sued the company, but I'm not litigious. I don't do that kind of thing with me. I really needed the job. Um, and the pride in me from dealing with this all the time. The first thing I thought was, you know what? I'm going to prove them wrong. 
give me an entry-level position and I'll be number one. Just, I want to prove them wrong and I want to, I want to work my way up. And I don't know if they said and gave me the position because I could have sued them or what. I don't know why they did, but they agreed. So I, I started working for this company, rose up in the ranks. I remember I still got the crystal trophies of being number one for, I mean, I was sales fanatic. I was, I was doing my thing at this company and the part about it that was interesting was when I started working there, they had me change my name because the clientele that they dealt with didn't want to purchase from black people. And I played the game. What what year was this? (laughs) This was five years ago. No way. Yeah. Wow. This is like five years ago. Wow. And the company's still the same today. I mean, nothing's changed. And five, yeah, if it was five years ago, this is It's crazy because I I would imagine it, you know, long, long long time. 80s or 70s. No, No, this is five years ago here in Austin. Wow. And and that's why it was so, people were like, you did that in Austin? I was like, yes. And here's, well, how long ago? Well, five years ago, it was when it ended, but it started when Obama was president. So it was during that time. And what ended up was so interesting was that now that I think about it, how many people get to be a double agent? You know, my, my wife, I keep talking about my wife because she's the one that has to keep bringing me back to, to reality. And she's like, well, you've got crossover qualities and crossover qualities in the black community means I speak proper English. I don't speak Ebonics and I can actually carry a conversation with pretty much anyone. Well, on the phones, they couldn't tell because I took some of the bass out of my voice and I speak to them on the phone. I do all of my sales. One time I slipped up and I was talking to a gentleman. We were having a great time and I slipped up, let the bass back in my voice and relax a little bit. And I said something. And he said to me, you sound like one of those darkies while I'm on the phone. I thought, yeah, that's right. I'm uh, okay. I'm a double agent, double agent. And I got myself back together, but that stuck with me. And then I started noticing all of the conversations that I was able to have with people over the phone that I wouldn't ever been ever had speaking to them face to face. Uh, there were just so many secrets and so many things. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I was being a little naive. Um, this has got to change. It wasn't a thing where I got angry. I thought, forgive and take the high road. Was it was the effect of that on your soul and your heart of, of not being authentic, of fitting into a, a white man's, you know, identity? What that, would that do to you? Thankfully, they used to call me, everything's black and white. It's so funny. They used to call me the black Tony Robbins. Um, I honestly believe a lot of the things that I listen to, every book, Jim Rohn, every book, every motivational speaker, I let that get in here. And I think if I hadn't have done that, plus with my faith, I think it would affect me one way. But we choose how we're going to let something affect us. For me, I could have been very hateful. Uh, most of the people that I know are hateful. My kids can't believe the story and they're angry when I tell them what happened. Yeah. But for me... Instead of me allowing it affect the, me that way, it was compassion. I literally want to do everything I can because I really believe I can change people's minds if given an opportunity. So I didn't let it drag me down. I think it's because of the constant um, reminders that I would write on my mirror 
the constant self-talk, the constant just reminding myself that. And, and the, to answer your question, the fastest way and the best way is this. When that kind of stuff happened, there was someone that said it a long time ago. I don't remember who said it, but I started doing this. I take account of all the blessings that I have. My wife, my family, both my parents, the money that I'm making in the bank. If all of those things that were happening around me didn't affect that, I'm good. So I was able to say, no matter what they do to me, I can allow it to bring me down. And when it brings me down and I get depressed, then it'll start affecting my relationships. Or I can separate that, put up a wall, a hedge of protection around my family and everything else, and not allow it to affect me. And I was able to do that. And I really believe it's because of a constant, and it's a constant war. It's a battle. Because every single time when I build myself up, it seems like something comes to try to knock me down. And I really honestly believe not to get all supernatural and things like that. But like I said, you can I, if you want, man. Huh? I'm all about that stuff. So you can, we'll you see. Can, okay. So can do that. <laughs> I'll tell you when I was in church and this happened from when I was small to when I got remarried to my wife and every single time we went, someone would come to us on Four different occasions since I was married, but in the beginning it happened as well. But since I was married, four different occasions and every single person, it was like they were sitting in our living room, listening to our conversations. And then they would tell us, you know, the prophetic whole thing. And they would tell us exactly what the other person said, that they had no way of knowing that they said it almost verbatim. What I mean by that is. I've been told on so many occasions when I, when I say I, I don't want to get into the supernatural, but it is what it is. I've been told on so many occasions that my destiny was to minister to kings and queens and leaders. That's all that I was supposed to do. And I avoided it, first of all, because I was like, there ain't no money in that. How am I going to make some money? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So when it was more money motivated, when I was more money motivated, um, but every single person said that. And they, and then they also said that my wife and I were going to be rich, not because for having riches sake, but so we would have more money to bless more people. And I didn't know where to put that. So I just kind of tucked it in the first time I heard it. About six months later, another gentleman came, said almost the exact same thing. Um, three months later, a guy came from someplace, one some Africa. Um, it was, um, I think Ghana, someplace in Africa and was speaking our church. And he looked in the audience and pointed at me, told me to come here, told me the same thing the other two people said. And so when that kind of, I don't really believe in coincidences. I just don't. I believe things happen for a reason. And like I said, I kind of tucked it away. And here recently, my last job, I was downsized. Um, that means let go. <laughs> I, was, I was downsized from my last job and there were no other black salespeople, no other. And this has happened twice within the last three years. No other black salespeople. They changed things. I was number one in the company at the, the first job. I was number one in the company the month before they let me go the next month. Um, like what's going on here? 
um, this last last company that I was working for, it was a situation where I just was somewhere that I didn't belong. It was just a place to make as much money as I could. And it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Like I said, I was in this maze going down. I was supposed to go on a certain path and I was refusing to do it. So after that happened, I was like, maybe God's trying to tell me something, man. I, let me pray about it. Let me figure it out. And when I started working at this, I decided to try to find a way to use my experiences, the whole racism stuff, just all that stuff to help people. The last company I was at, they had a diversity, equity, inclusion meeting. I didn't even know what DEI was. I was like, Dia, D. I had, I had no idea what it was, man. And I thought, okay. And we went in there and they started talking and all of these feelings started welling up in me about the things that I had experienced in the past. And they came to me and asked me a question and I stood up and started speaking and people had tears in their eyes and people started coming up to me later saying, thank you. They just, and I remembered that. So after they let me go, I got on the internet and just did a search. What is this DEI stuff? And I found out that in the last three months, the searches for DEI at companies and corporations had gone up 900%, something strange, like ridiculous. I thought, okay, maybe I'm onto something here. And so I started doing some research and just my experiences and public speaking and the experience that I've had. I've been speaking since I was 18. Come to find out that corporations and and companies and CEOs and Amazon, Coca-Cola, all of these companies, they actually want people like me to come in and help them. Remember the four prophetic things that I told you just even recently about ministering to kings and queens and leaders. Things started kind of, once I got my mind right to say, I'm going to go on the path that I'm supposed to go on, it seems like things started falling into place. And meeting with Matt, you know, uh, your producer there, that, uh, me, meeting with Matt, and he said, man, I'm just, he just kind of said the same thing. He's like, I really feel like that you would, you would do great consulting with companies. And he didn't have no idea that I had already shifted my whole everything. I put the music thing down. I, you know, I've been a musician. I play a few musical instruments and they sit up in my room and I look at them every once in a while in my, in my studio room there and don't do anything with it because I'm so focused on the path that I'm on right now. And everything that I do now is based on the fact that I could have been really angry, but it's been about forgiveness. It's been about forgiveness. I I have to take the high road. Um, One of the things that I talk a lot about when I'm, when I'm talking to people is especially other black people, because, because of the fact that I'm so quick to forgive. um, I don't know if your listeners and who will know about this, but it's a thing called a coon. Um, They think I'm quote unquote cooning or uncle, like I'm, that black guy that, you know, doesn't like his own people. And it's not that at all. I, I think that we're all humans first. And just being able to find that humanity, that common ground and start working from there and loving each other. For me, that's the most important thing. And so to look up at someone and say, I'm sorry. Um, When I talk about taking the high ground, when you ask how it made me feel, it's not anger. Sometimes the frustration is so great because even though I think people could change, 
the resistance is so huge. It's so huge. And the only thing that I can do is what I've done all my life is to keep pushing. But for me, what the high ground looks like when I say high ground is I have to love you. I have to love other people that are not like me, even though they lock their doors when I drive by them or hide their purse, or even though the talk that I had to give my sons, I have three boys and three girls, uh, the talk that every black man or family gives their son is how to respond when they're pulled over by a police officer. And that's like regular talk at the dinner table. Um, always keep your hands, always say, yes, sir. Always do this. Always keep your hands where they can see them. Don't make any sudden movement. I mean, we actually go over those things at the dinner table because we want them to come home the next night. Um, I forgive and take the high road, even though my son, who's had a lot of friends, he was an athlete, that whole thing, but he could not play airsoft with his airsoft gun with his friends because if he took his gun out on the street, a neighbor that saw him, even though they saw everyone else, a neighbor that saw him with a gun would call the police and say, come check it out because there's a black boy outside with a gun. And he used to be frustrated. I'm like, yeah, you can play airsoft. You guys can come and play in our backyard. And his friends and their parents thought that we were crazy for doing that, but they didn't understand what I had to deal with since I was 12. And all of those things affected me in such a way that I could have gone one of two ways. Most people that are black have a serious hate, even though white people today did not own slaves. What a lot of white people, a lot of people that are in the majority have to realize that every single time a black person goes through something, that white person is a representation of what we went through of what we went through because I was not a slave. My father was not a slave. So same way, just because a white person didn't have slaves, just because I was not a slave, there are still things that are affecting us both and there are biases. And so for me, finding common ground is saying, Hey, I forgive you because I know that you didn't do this stuff. And I know you have to deal with the guilt of that. And sometimes it's uncomfortable, just like I was not a slave. And even though I'm still going with stuff, I might have to take a high ground. It's like, the big stones that they have in CrossFit where they have to lift the stones up. A lot of people don't want to talk about equity and affirmative action and things like that. And so I've said, okay, don't think about it that way. Let's think about equality, equal. I've got the big stone. You've got the big stone. It's the same size. And so you want to give people big stones and all of the stones are the same weight. The difference is for Hispanics and women and for, in my case, in blacks, you have to lift the stone up higher. So it's more difficult. People that have gone through more, that have bigger pain, that have bigger wounds, you have to apply more medicine. You, you, you have to get, you have to apply more salve in order to see healing. And all I want to do is see healing. And it started with myself since I was 12 constant taking the bandaid off, rubbing something on it because I really truly believed my faith wise that in my, in my faith as and I'm a Christian that all people are the same. We've all got this blood that bleeds red, but what the problem where I separate with a lot of common day Christians. And I say that in quotes because it's very loose. Some of the, the way, the way where, where we part ways as far as the way we believe, number one, I don't believe that the government should legislate morality. 
everybody should have a choice. And I believe that your choices don't necessarily affect me. I might have a certain way to believe, but your choices are your choices. It doesn't make you any less human. So because you're human, I believe we can get along. Period. There's no gray area. There's no nothing. I believe because you are a human being and there's no black heaven, white heaven, Hispanic heaven, Asian heaven, women heaven, LG, there's no difference. We're all human. I have chosen to take it all the way there. You know, just like Jesus came and said, he who threw the, who has no sin, throw the first stone. He loved the woman that was a prostitute. He loved this person. He loved them first. Sure, there were certain things in the Bible and certain things that he said that meant that people should be walking a certain way. But if I take the whole old school WWJD, what would Jesus do? He loved them first. And so that's what I'm about, man, is just loving myself so I can be freed up to love people. How do you, because there's a lot of frustration in you too, how do you balance that? frustration and anger with love because I hear you I'm, I'm also the same way that I try and leave with love always but there's still this human side of mass frustration and anger how do, you, how do you how do you balance those two extremes those two polarities because frustration and anger is almost the fear almost the opposite of love so how do you dance in that duality the way I do it is discipline practice just like the pugilist just like if I was in martial arts or something like that something that you do day in, day out. And because I know that it could be an attack, I have to keep my mind right all the time between the mantras and things that I say to myself, the constant reminders, um, the things that I do, making sure my actions line up with my words, guarding my mind when I listen to the news, because I can be really frustrated. The news can come on and I can start thinking a lot of things, but I think, Scott, government, I, I shouldn't rely on government to legislate morality. That's not going to hurt me. These people want X, Y, Z. Let them have what they want, because if that's their feeling, I can't discount their feelings. They're going to have certain feelings. Are those feelings right or wrong? That's not for me to say. But what I can do is I can love them through it. It's a consistent practice. Um, when you look at biases and people that have certain biases, like when I walk in places, I I. When I went to Kansas City, I'm from Kansas City, but when I moved there from California, kind of an interim, I was, I was there for about four years before I moved to Texas. And I started a company, my personal training. I had a standalone building that I was able to get. Um, and I started this training company and I'm in there painting and getting things together till like sometimes two, three o'clock in the morning, twice a week, almost twice a week for two months. Every single time I was driving home, I would get pulled over by the police. Because I was in a better neighborhood and it was a black guy driving a Jeep in a, in a good what neighborhood. Would, what would they say when they pulled you over? The classic thing, and any African-American that listens to this will know what this is, I resemble someone they're looking for. That was it. And so they had probable cause. So they said, I didn't know as much about the law then, so they pulled me over. But it wouldn't just stop there. Because I'm a large, bald black man, I would be there for about an hour, hour and a half because they would wait till backup came. So two or three police cars minimum would show up, sometimes up to five. I think one time it was five. They would have me go sit on the curb. Okay, I'm a business owner painting my... And then they would commence to digging underneath my car, underneath my seats, taking everything out of the backseat. Unbelievable things that I was going through. And 
I had a choice to be angry. And I have to tell you, the anger did come. It would come. I would be furious. Then I had another choice. Do I display that anger now? Or do I remember the talk that my parents gave me about yes, sir, no, sir, so I can get home alive and so I don't have to go to jail? All those types of things. So you take it, take it on the chin, take, you take the high road. Then after that anger subsides, because I have told myself so many times that there is good in everybody and that everybody's not like this, um, I am able, uh, one of my Instagram pages, I've got a couple, I, I tend to take pictures with police officers when I see them. I go talk to them, have them take a picture. And so I post it on my, and I've actually had black people come up, uh, Mr. Popo, what are you doing? Taking pictures with the enemy, you know, taking pictures with police. And for me, it's not about that. It's about showing people that we can get along, be an example. If I affect one person, I've succeeded. Just one person. And the only reason I say that is because that was the message of Christ. You know, if he came back and one person believed, success. If I'm preaching a message and one person believes, success. I've had to tell myself that over and over. So people only change through personal connection. Like you can, you can lecture someone and tell someone all they want. They're not going to listen to you. It's only when they get to love you. They get to know you that things really fucking change. That's it. So that's a strategy, you know? You that's can't. it. And, and, and for me... The discipline in reminding myself of that, I think, is what what carried me through. If I had of just been affected by every situation that came, I'd probably be real bit probably be really bitter, really upset and angry. But every single person is different. So because of the discipline and the practice that I've had, I'm able to not treat the next person that I meet like the person that didn't want me to work at a company because I was black. You're not that person. So why would I treat you any different? It's when you form beliefs about people based on one of your experiences, when every single person is different, just like fingerprints, different personalities, different experiences. I've taught myself to accept that and really believe that and expect the good in people. So every single person is literally innocent until proven guilty. What would you say to someone who's been through similar experiences to you? But it's on the more angry side, which is very angry and frustrated. Bro, I got, I've, I've experienced, I've talked to, I talk to him all the time and it takes a while to get them to calm down. Um, but what I would say is every single person and they're like, yeah, everyone, I'm not like everyone. Like, I'm like, do you know every single person? Well, I know for, well, no, but you don't know everyone. Do you? People that think that they have to come to the understanding that you do not know every situation. You have not tried every solution. Every is a very, very big, broad word. And because you don't know every situation, is there a possibility that this person is not that way? Do you know any people that are not that way? Well, yeah, I do have a, a, an aunt that, uh, well, we call her an aunt. She's my play aunt. Uh, a white lady who was really nice to, okay, so do you believe she's the only nice white person in the entire face of the planet? No, and, and it's just getting people to be realistic. Oftentimes when you get angry, oftentimes when you get frustrated and you're dealt what you would call a bad hand, our brains, because they don't want to take the time to think, they filter. And that's where bias comes from. Your brain is like, okay, I'm receiving all of these messages 
Let me filter down and make it easier. White person didn't get the job. They're racist because of what I've experienced. Your brain, it's really cool how your brain works. It's kind of, you want to talk about AI, but the intelligence of our brains, the way it works. But oftentimes when that, when our brains formulate these, these, uh, um, hypotheses about people, um, they're incorrect because we're basing it on our own experiences and what we've dealt with before. And so for me, it's a protection mechanism too. That's, and that's, that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, especially in the day and time that we live in right now, that's really dangerous because there are too many people. I believe a lot more good than bad that are out there, but social media has made it to where we find out about the bad a lot faster. Nobody reports on the good. So we've got a lot of things that are leading us down a path. That's a very dangerous path. And, and I, I feel bad for people like I, the, the government and especially in Texas, what we're going through. I mean, when you really think about it, telling people about their differences, just exposing and saying, Hey, there's black people and white people. And this happened in the history. That's not going to cause more racism unless you choose to be racist. It's, it's just, it's like apples and oranges. It's like they don't even fit together, but it's, there are people, people that are running for office even that, that hate us coming together so much. I, I say that. I don't know if that's the case. I can't even really say that. It, it appears as though there's so much against educating people about the past so we don't repeat it that they're basically repeating the past. It's, it's beyond me. I, I, I can't even, I don't even know. And so the discipline to focus on the good in people is what gets me through. And that comes from practice, constantly reminding myself, especially once I experience something bad. Those are the times when I have to really sit back and say, don't generalize. I know you go through this a lot, but this is only one person. And how do you know they weren't having a bad day? How do you know that it has nothing to do with racism, but you're just basing it on stuff that you think, you know, in the past, it may have been racism. It may not, but for me, it doesn't matter. What matters is they're human. And there's a possibility that if someone spends some time with them, that they want what's best. But right now they think what's best is to stop a black person from walking by them because they might steal their purse. That's unbelievably weird and crazy and, 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 and almost asinine to think. But if someone thinks that they're thinking that for a reason. And so for me, it's all about root cause analysis. Why are they thinking that? And let's address that if they want to talk. If they don't, you know, God bless them and, and keep moving and just understand that maybe somebody else will water the seed, you know, that you planted or what have you. What do you recommend for the people on the other side of the aisle who are not black? What should they be doing to same thing? lessen the, the flow? Same thing. Um, the high road may be for them to valid. I have this thing to where for you to love me, and I'll just say you or people on the other side of the aisle, for you to love me. We got to, first of all, throw the whole idea of, and this is going to sound really strange. 
we got to throw the whole idea of empathy out the window. Throw it out. Empathy, when people talk about empathize, and, and, and that's, a, that's like a, a, a word that's being used and tossed around a lot right now as far as diversity and inclusion, having empathy for the other group. Empathy means understanding. You know, under, well, the reason I say throw it out is because it's impossible for you to understand. At the end of the day, after a workshop where we do things and you try to put yourself in my shoes, number one, you can't because you don't have the relate. Something didn't happen to you at 12 that has you thinking a certain way. So you can't really understand. At the end of the day, when we leave the workshop, I still have to go back to my black family and my black situations and you get to go back to your situations. So understanding is just throw that out the window. You can't understand. What I would tell them is to be okay with that. I say the same thing to to blacks, Hispanics. Be okay with the fact that you can't really understand. But then what I think is important is to try to learn as much as you can. Listen. Try to learn as much as you can from, from the other person about what's going on. So when you learn what's going on, you can take ownership for the part that you play in it. When you talk about the other side of the aisle, understand that some of the things that you say or do may be offensive. You may not know they're offensive. One of, one of my wife's best friends, um, there's a white lady that we're family. They've known our kids since they flag football. They've been, we've done everything. I actually officiated her oldest son's wedding. Um, and she wants people to know so much that they love us like family that they say the things that a lot of black people, African Americans hate, which is I have, I have some friends that are black, you know, and it's just, it's okay to say something like that if you're not saying it to prove something. And she isn't, but we educated her and said, these are some of the things that if you say those around other black people and you say, well, I have friends for black. If you're saying that because you're trying to prove that you're not racist by saying it, it can be offensive to some people. The reason why it's offensive, as far as you're concerned, it doesn't really matter. As far as across the aisle, white people, when they say that, I don't want you to be so concerned about the things you say. What I want you to be concerned about is how you're making other people feel. And validate those feelings. Understand that I have feelings that you might not understand, and that's okay. But value those things. Validate my feelings. It's like, you know what? I can see why he would have feelings that way. I didn't do it. I didn't, I, I'm not responsible, but I, I, I get it that as far as he's concerned, I'm white. He's dealing with things that happen with white people that he's still dealing with these, these days. So I, I get it. I, 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 I get where he's coming from. I, I get why he's upset. Once you understand something like that and, and you give value to the things that the other side is taking, do what you can to engage with them, to, to work with them, to, to get busy and get to work trying to fix things. And that's the only way that, that any of this can be solved. So, I say all that to say, you might not, if I was talking to white people as a whole, you might not have a way to really love me or love black people. Not in your heart yet. Maybe something's going on. I don't know what it is. doesn't really matter. If you really want to fix this and you're sincere in your heart that you want to work together, try to listen. Own the part that, that you need to take ownership for, whether it's you said some crazy things. You've got some feelings. You've got some biases. And then understand that those biases didn't happen overnight. 
You know what I mean? Between life imitating art and art uh, imitating life, whether it's seeing rappers, seeing black people depicted on TV as robbing, seeing seeing all those types of things, seeing Oscars being won by an actor doesn't win for great things, but he gets he wins for the perpetuation of in the black community. They talk about this all the time. The only time a black person can win an Oscar is that they perpetuate the stereotype of being an angry black man. Or I mean, there's so many things that the black community deals with because of what happened to them when they were 12. You know what I mean? So, so those, all those things, all we ask is that you understand why we would say that you can't understand what we're going through, but just kind of let it click. He may be feeling certain way. He has a right. It's like any relationship. You don't discount people's feelings. And I think that's what happens a lot of times. Oftentimes people discount each other's feelings and that's on both sides of the aisle. Black people discount the way white people say, even to the point of degrading them, there's this whole thing about they don't want to hear white tears because you have a lot of white people that didn't have slaves that feel so bad about what happened that it drives in the tears. And black people are like, you don't get to cry. We've got dealt with this. We've got stop that. If you really want to work together, working together means I understand that you are frustrated I don't know why. I don't know all the whys. And I, I can't even get for the life of me why you would be mad at me saying something about me being black and that would cause you to cry. But you know what? Forget all that. I want to let you know that I validate. I, I, there's value in the fact that you care enough to cry. There's value in the fact that you care enough, whether it be out of embarrassment, whether whatever it is, let's deal with that for the face value and start to work together so we can get past this mess, man, it's, it's, it's to a point where I had a friend come up to me and he said, so is it okay to where they're uncomfortable describing me as a black person? It's like, if I'm standing over in a corner with someone else and they're like, well, who are you talking about? Um, and they're just, they don't want to say the black guy. So they say the, the, the tall guy, the ball, we're both bald, you know, the tall guy, the one with the red shirt. No, he was standing on the left. Just say the black guy. But it's because of all of the stuff that everyone's gone through. There's so many frustrations, so many red flags, so many eggshells. I mean, every everything that you can throw in there mixed up into one to where we can't be honest with each other. If we're honest with each other about wanting to work together, not, you know, allowing anger and frustration and things to boil over because that never gets you anywhere. But if we're honest with each other and if we if we really want to work together to where we can sit together on the same side of the table and really work on relationships with each other, I think the world would be a better place. (laughs) I think it will. I think it'll be in a better place, man. Um, I know for me, the frustration kind of getting back to what you were talking about, the frustration from time to time when it's there, it's become such a response for me to immediately flick back into love all people. Everybody's good. We just got to find it. Of course, that's going to get me in trouble because everybody's not good. I get that. You know, there are some people that may be evil. We all have the potential potential for good. You yes. know, right now we all have the potential. Every for good. single person does. Yeah. And, And I have to believe that for me, I have to believe that if I'm going to be a Christian, like I say that I am, I have to believe that if not only if I'm going to be a man of God, but if I'm going to be 
a leader for my kids. I've seen it for myself. Anyone, you too, but I've seen it myself. Like, I don't know if I used to be a bad person, but I wasn't a good person in many ways. And through recognizing that through healing and believing in that good in myself, I became good. So I think it's through myself. I can look at someone who's, that's a, that's a concept called shadow work, where I can look at someone who's bad or, or done bad things, crimes, and I could, the worst things, I could still see love. I could see God in them because I've, I've done it for myself. Yes. I've seen the darkness in me and turn it into light. And I think that's important work too. Beyond all this is being able to recognize in yourself what's not good in yourself and, and be able to see, hmm, I can heal this for better. And that can help you have compassion for others who are bad in your eyes. That's right, man. And that's why I said forgiveness, man. I have to forgive myself for the junk that I've done. Because one of my defense mechanisms used to be before I before I changed my ways was to see how bad I could hurt somebody with my words. Man, I, I used to be the master of words and I didn't grow up cursing. But when I got done with you, you'd wish that you'd never spoke to me because I'd go up one side of people and down the other. And I would just what we would call read them, you know, it would and. It was so evil to me. That was darker. I wish I had a custom out instead of demoralized them. Um, to this day, there are people that I think about in college that I hurt so bad. And I'm wondering what effect that I have on them as a future, as an adult. Um, and I feel bad about that because our words are extremely powerful. The tongue, you can cut people, you know. But you're also cutting yourself. I mean, because I'm even dealing with those things now that I've done in the past. And that's why I say I have to forgive myself. Because if I don't forgive myself and I allow that darkness, that cloud to kind of hover over, I won't be able to move forward. I won't be able to have any successes because I won't feel worthy. We also, I think a key thing here is you're forgiving with accountability. You're, you're saying like, I forgive myself, but I'm also know I'm doing things to heal. I think that's one of the Shadows I see in the, I mean, not to ever knock any, any faith, but in, in certain religions or mm-hmm. where it's just forgiveness without any accountability. No. Or just like, you know, pardon me and then I go back to life. But what you're saying is beautiful is that I've done too, is that I forgive myself for those things I've done, but how, what, what, alongside that, what have I actually done to change that? Now, see, the unfortunate part is that's the part about Christianity that nobody wants to deal with. And I don't know other faiths too, but. Every part of Christianity, even from baptism, my mom used to say it used to be the funniest thing in the world. She'd be like, that person in that right there, when they get baptized and in the water, they went in a wet center, uh, uh, went in a center, come out a wet one, didn't change whatsoever because they said things, but they didn't have a purpose or responsibility afterwards. Um, the same thing with just any kind of forgiveness and people, you know, getting prayed for and getting forgiven, whether it's in Catholicism, what have you, and not really thinking that there's any accountability or change that they have to have. You know, 180. Everything about the Christian faith is that accountability. Nobody talks about the repentance, making a 180 and changing and walking the other way and doing the right thing, because nobody wants to talk about what they're repenting from, which is the sin. In Christian faith, it's all about the sin that you were committing because nobody wants to take responsibility and accountability for the fact that there is sin in our hearts. So there's, there is some darkness in there that we need to take responsibility for. It's let's skip over that and fast forward to everything's fine right now. But 
I didn't really take accountability, responsibility for the junk. And so that junk just stays with you and it waits to rear its head. It waits to expose itself when, because you weren't disciplined, because you didn't take care of things, because you didn't dig it out at the root, those weeds are still in there ready to grow. And people just go through this cycle of never really healing because they don't get the infection out. They, they just don't. And sometimes it takes scrubbing, man. They can be so much damage to the cells, the good cells and the live cells that you need to scrub that bad stuff out. And it hurts. You know, sometimes healing actually hurts. It has to hurt because, you know, if our bodies have all, it, it, we think that when we repress pain, it vanishes. And when we forget yeah. about that thing, it just vanishes into cosmos. It's God's problem. But in reality, it goes into our body. It stays, literally stays in our body, causes disease. So when we finally feel something we've been repressing, yes. grief or hurting someone, it's, it's a valve that opens. It's like a, you have to let all the wounding that's stuck in your system kind of pour out. Mm-hmm. It takes time, right? If, you, if you've been repressing a wound, some of the things I've been through for, I'm young, like 20 years, that's 20 years of pain that you got to yeah. feel. Yeah. You know, and it's, it takes a while. Man, um, is it is it what what's one of those wounds for you that just seems to keep opening up and it's taken a long time to, to fully release? The wounds for me, the, the the biggest one for me is the responsibility for my family. I am, and I deal with it. It's so funny. Every birthday I use, except for the last one, because I think I'm starting to get some healing. But every birthday. I would go through this big, big time where I was just majorly depressed. And the reason I was depressed was dealing with the fact that from the time I was, when I was homeless in LA, um, I don't think, I don't know if I told you that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. How that, <laughs> that happened? So <laughs> I, when and I was telling you, when was this? Too? Life decision. Now this was, oh, I can tell you exactly. Wow. That's wild. It was 1998. I was born. I was born in 1998. Were you really? <laughs> <laughs> so 1997, 1998 is when it ended. Um, I um some terrible, terrible business decisions. When I told you that I was not managing money and doing the things that I was supposed to do, I was making a lot of money. I had a detail shop in California and I was just screwing around with the money and not budgeting, not taking care of my family, hanging out, blowing money, ended up losing my marriage ended up with my kids being there and her family was there in California. And I was, and so I went from everything seeming like it was okay. As far as I was concerned, selfish, you know, to living literally, she took the car. I had two duffel bags and the clothes on my back. Wasn't sleeping in a car. Wasn't, I was sleeping under bushes on park benches I was in um, bus stops. And at that time of my life, I thought, you know, I'm in good shape. You know, I've been training people in the mornings and the evenings. I had just moved out to California not too long ago at that time and moved back to California. I'm going to join the military. And so I went to pay phones. Uh, most kids are pay phone. Yeah, it's a pay phone. You go and there used to be big phone books in them. I went to pay phone and I tore out the pages for all of the recruiting army Navy, the Air Force, uh, Coastal Guard, 
And I used to call them because I knew you can call those recruiters, man, and they would come pick you up. And I thought, I'm going to get three square meals, get to work out. I'm a good soldier. I can follow direct. This is it for me. I'm going to be okay. I called for three days straight every recruiting office in the area of Southern California, where I was from, Riverside area, California. No one ever answered the phone. When I talk about the spiritual and the science, you know, those times, no one answered them. I literally called probably seven or eight times a day. Every time I come up to a pay phone, no one answered the phone ever in any branch of the military. I was like, okay. I saw a sign at the last place that I called for this church. And I called the church looking for some help. And the pastor was like, I'll come get you. And I was like, okay, this is it. You know, and I played keys. I was a musician and things like that. I ended up helping him out. But at that time, when he came to get me, he took me to his house. And he had a daughter and a white pastor. And and, uh, she was a senior in high school or something like that. Needless to say, it was just a strange little situation. I don't know what, I don't know how or what his feeling was, but all of a sudden, we were eating dinner and everything, and his daughter kept looking at me. And the next thing I knew, he was trying to find me someplace to go. He was like, you're not staying in my house. I get it. And I was just grateful that I wasn't sleeping on the street, man. I mean, because I literally, when I tell you, I was looking for places. And it's funny when you go through things, how your attitude, your mind changes. You don't talk about people that you see as much anymore during situations because you don't know what they went through. I was literally looking for places under bushes that I could sleep that I didn't think a dog had peed under, you know, or park benches and trying to cover myself up with my shirt. So mayflies and stuff wouldn't get in my nose. Just weird little things that you start to do. Well, he found a lady that would take me in. But this lady that took me in, her and her husband taking me in meant they had a camper one of those little, I don't know if you've ever seen those old school campers that go in the back of an old pickup truck and it's got a trout on the back. Just a little camper with a little door, aluminum door. They had the camper, not the truck. They had a camper, that shell, sitting on some pallets on 10 acres of land. No electricity. They let me stay inside that camper in the middle of their property in exchange for building chicken coops. Um, this is 1998. Yeah. 1998. So I'm, I'm building chicken coops. I saw an old bicycle and I got a bicycle and got some tools and I started, I decided I was going to do a handyman, be a handyman. So I'm riding around and I saw these guys building a house. Well, I knew how to build because my dad was a draftsman and we built that. I mean, I'm really good at building things, what have you. So I went up to this guy that was building these houses in California in this gated neighborhood. And, uh, all white guys working for him, ask if he was hiring. Nope, we're not hiring. Sorry. And I thought to myself, even to clean up, you can, I was like, I'll do it. And he's like, nope, we're, uh, get out of here. We got work to do. It's like, okay, well, can I have those two buckets? It was these two big five gallon paint buckets. He's like, yeah, go ahead. So I got the buckets and I put the tools in the buckets and I put them on the handlebars. And so I'm driving around asking people if I can do stuff and fix things. And, and I ran into a guy that on this gated community on this lake had a pier and he had a pier that went out to the water and this deck and part of the deck was old part of he's like yeah i'm looking for somebody to fix my deck 
I'm on a bike. I parked the bike down there. He's, for us, he knows I'm just walking around the neighborhood getting contracts. And so I walk up to this house. He says, yeah, I'm looking for somebody. To, can you fix the deck? I go back and I look at the deck. He said, I want the deck to match the new deck that we've got down there. I'm like, sure, I can do it. And then I get on the payphone. I call Home Depot and I know that they bring for free the big places where you can dump the dump stuff and wood. And so I calculated how much it would cost to do this, his uh, job. And I knew how to upsell because I'd done that kind of thing and how to mark up, do markups. And then I got half the money up front. With the half of money I got up front, I got all of his lumber and had Home Depot deliver it to his driveway. And then I started working on this guy's deck. I built the guy's deck, tore all the other deck down, built the deck, just be by myself doing my thing. And long story short, after he saw the deck, he wanted me to fix his pier with the lamp that was at the top of it. So I fixed that. Looked great. Looked identical to the other one. The guy that would not hire me that was building a house, the house he was built building was across the lake. He saw the work that I did. One day I come walking out of the house and he said, uh, is that you doing that work back there? And I'm like, yeah. He said, you want to come work for me? This is the same guy that told me they weren't hiring. So long story short, I started working for him, building houses, doing the whole thing. And I just worked my way out of being homeless um, just out of pure determination. I see how people go crazy. There was a time because I was looking for a job at the same time, had no electricity. So I would fold my clothes up in my duffel bag really flat. There was a thin, I call them prison mattresses. There was a thin mattress at the top of that camper. I'd roll the mattress back and lay my clothes underneath the mattress and then roll it back and then sleep on top of it, hoping it would press my clothes enough to take get a job interview. I learned from that that when you're riding a bus or when you see people that are all wrinkled and do, you don't know what they've been through. You know, you don't know what's going on. And it just, that whole experience gave me a different outlook on how you treat everyone. People wonder, Scott, why do you give homeless people money when you see them? You know, they're only going to use it for alcohol. And after being homeless, even if they're buying alcohol because it keeps them warm or if it gives them some kind of comfort, that's not my responsibility to worry about that. I just need to show love to people. And so all of those type of situations. Um, in, in those, in that episode of homelessness, what made you not lose hope? What made you not turn to drugs? Because most people in that situation either become addicts or they just give up everything, become nihilists. So what in you made you hope or believe that there was a way out of it? You know, it's funny. It, and it wasn't so much drugs. I almost, I could feel myself I almost lost it at one time because it was just so stressful. And because I grew up with animals and I was a herpetologist, reptile, just, I've got a lot of stuff that I've reinvented myself so many times. At one time I thought, I know how I'll make some money. I'll raise mice because they have babies really fast and pet stores want them. And so I had these couple of mice in this little cage and they had babies and the stink, man, it was so, it just smelled like urine in the whole thing. I was like, what am I doing here? I'm losing I'm just losing my mind. I'm going crazy. All the things that I'm doing, I took them. It was a field anyway. I just threw everything out. I threw them all out. And I was like, I got to do something better than this. And that's when I started doing the, 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 the handyman stuff. But what kept me that entire time, A, was my faith. I truly believed that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's one of the so you verses. You just felt like it was part of your story part of your journey at that, the, cultivating at, at that time no okay. at that time i didn't think that mm -hmm. i thought you know what i don't know why i'm going through this but i know it's going to be all right 
it was more that it wasn't like it's, I know I'm going to be able to use this later. I know I had no idea what tomorrow was going to bring. I had no idea how long I was going to be there, but I did know that I wasn't going to be there forever. And it's just through having a faith so strong that no one could deter me. It, nothing, no instance could, I could, there's the story about, and, and these stories and the faith and the way that I grew up are so strong with me, but there are certain stories that I relate to every situation. And there's one story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got thrown in the fiery furnace. Well, the king came to him and said, if you don't bow down to me, when the trumpet goes off, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. They wouldn't bow down. So he was going to throw him in the furnace. And the, the, the boys looked at the king and said, you know what? We believe that God is going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still think he's worthy to be praised. So do what, do, do your worst. He threw him in. And as the story goes, the next, even it was so hot that the people that threw him in burned up. And then he went back the next day and they looked and the three boys were still alive and Jesus was in there with them. That whole story had such an effect at me through my entire life that I, I always thought, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but God's been so good to me so far. I don't really want to complain. And even if I don't get out of this, what's complaining going to do anyway? So instead of worrying about complaining and all that jazz, let me do everything I can to get out of it because I believe you get more on the way than you do in the beginning. So I'll learn more about my situation on the way. I'll grasp more knowledge on the way. Every step that I take, I'm getting closer. So instead of me sitting and wallowing in my mess, Everything I do because of the talent and the skill and the gifts and the blessings and the fortune even that the thing, all things work together for good. So I'm just going to work and allow God to do what he needs to do. If I'm going the wrong way, I trust that he'll let me know like he's done so many times before that ain't the way you need to go. And he'll move me to another place or I'll move to another place with his leading but for me, it was always all things work together for good. And if any man, it, it's the, the, the great one of Philippians 4.13. Um, it says, I can do all things through Christ. Over the years, I have modified that for myself. And my mantra is, if any man can, this man can. If human beings can do something, we're all carbon-based. We're made of the same stuff. So I can do it as well. I can learn to do it. I can work at doing it. And so kind of like a chameleon, I can adapt to my surroundings and be successful because of belief. Just because I believe that strongly. And that's that's what's gotten me through. That I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know how I got out of all the situations. I didn't know when I was homeless if I was ever going to get out of that situation, but I wasn't going to stop trying. That's it. Yeah. There's, there's a Bible verse I like that says, I think you may not know now, but you will eventually in some way that, you know, in those moments, I, mean, I haven't experienced homelessness. I'm not trying to equate it to any degrees, but yeah, yeah. to me, I've been a drug addict. In that time, I did, I did lose hope. I was just... I, I gave up on everything. I was just, I didn't I was suicidal. Tried many times to to die. I just didn't want to be here at all. And in that moment, if anyone told me, you know, 
hey, you're going through this for a reason for something else. I've been like, fuck you, you know, yeah, no fucking shot. But now I can look back and be like, I had to experience that. Even though it was horrible and, and terrible, the compassion I, er- I learned from that for addicts, for people suffering, and the way I healed myself through it, it made my mission. It, it literally, me escaping that is what creates this. So I was me, just going to say, man, think about if you, and some people, unfortunately, they go through the things that you went through. But it's that same thing that I believe. I really believe. And like you said, you wouldn't have wanted to accept it at that time. No way. Yeah. But Could see it. the people that you're helping today, the mission that you have would not be possible if you hadn't have experienced that. Also be fake if I did it. Because yeah. when when you speak, I think there's speaking from knowledge and memorizing things that come from a book. But there's wisdom, right? Wisdom is... Yeah earned through experiences. So when you speak, you can feel it in your heart. It's a different energy. It's different. You know? 100% different. So how are you, what are you focusing on, on now as part of your mission? Is there like a specific tenant or, or cause you told me like a million things you, you've yes. done and there's like a very specific tenant or mission you're, you're focusing on right now in this, in this moment to bring right up. now in this moment, because it's so bad ever since I think, well, it's always been there, but ever it's been magnified ever since literally Obama was president. And like I said, I was a, I was a double agent when I got a chance to do that at that other company. It's all about diversity, equity. It's all about people getting along, races, getting along, more so in the corporate level on jobs. And I think that part is more because I need to, I need to eat. You know, I need to get paid and that's, that's, that's where money is. But I've, and and I was like, there he goes again in my head. I had to think, man, I'm doing it again because of the fact that they've kind of almost outlawed companies and schools to do anything about diversity in Texas. I've been trying to think of ways where I could do it to where I could offer them at no charge or let them pay me whatever, because the message is that important to me because I believe it's going to change the world. I really believe that if we can really focus on finding common ground in, in humanity, that racism is going to go out the window. I think with you, why your message is so powerful is that you're really coming from love. A lot of the yeah. messaging I see come from a place of victimhood. And I get it. I understand why that'd be the case. I fully understand. not hating on it, but just not as as effective. Right. If, if, right. People are, if you're fighting hate with hate, you're not, you're not going to get anywhere. But I think you're... you're when you're coming from love and, and a realistic love, you really get what's going on. You've been yeah. through it. It's different. People can really listen. And, and the people who are opposed to it, people, I think you have to change the people who are opposed to it, right? The people who, who, who aren't going to listen anyway. They're really not going to listen to someone who's, who's a victim in some way, but they're really going to listen to you when you come from understanding and love. Yeah. You know, you know, it's funny and people look at me crazy when I say this and I'm not political. I don't believe I wish there was a day back like when George Washington to where you didn't have any parties and just everybody got together and voted for who they thought was best. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah. So but during the time when President Trump was running and all the things that were going on, I used to tell people all the time, I wish he would let me on his uh, work with him. And, and how to deal with people as far as their race relations and everything else goes. And all of my black friends are like, you're a coon, you're this, you're crazy. I can't believe you would say that. But the reason I wish that is because instead of doing the basic, let's get people to represent stereotypical black people, or let's get preachers just to show that we like black people. And these preachers are not really what I would call Christians anyway. And they're leading dark and dirty life, whatever. I don't want to get into all that because people get frustrated, but 
to really come from a position of love and say, look, bro, first of all, um, accountability, forgiveness, all of those types of things have to come into play. If you're really serious that you want to show that this is working, let's attack it from a different perspective. Let's attack it from the perspective of, of love and of humility. It probably never would happen, but I really believe that anybody that wants to do something that's going to be lasting needs to attack it from a position of love. If we build on a foundation of love and start building up from there, it's going to work. All these other programs, all the other things that people are developing, it's like building a house on sinking sand. Because if you keep building on something that's not the truth, you know, taking ownership, doing your best, not only to sympathize with the other person, but to learn and to validate them, doing everything we can to get this foundation to where we you, you establish common ground. And then once we establish that common ground, instead of fighting it to each other across the table, we get on both sides. We both sit on the same side of the table and we look at this thing together and say, okay, where do we go from here? Not how do I make a program for them or how do I deal with them because they hate us and we hate them. All of that kind of stuff dissolves if we all have a common place to start from. It's engineered this way. Yeah. You know, I think that, I mean, it's a cliched statement, but it's true that if we're so busy fighting each other, right? If the Democrats fighting the Republicans, the blacks fighting the whites, then we're not coming together and fighting those who are keeping us in the same structure. That's it. You know, we don't realize that. And we're so distracted by the news. And if you like CNN, you like Fox, Fox, whatever side you're on, you're basically manipulated to just hate others all the time. And it's, it's, it's made that way. It's designed that way. That's it. And unfortunately, everyone gets so caught up in the hate that they don't have time to step back. They don't take the time to step back. And like I said, the, the root cause of, of all of this stuff and attack that. And it might not be popular. It might be a, lo- a while before you hear about someone like me changing Amazon or Walmart or Coca-Cola. But even if it's not me, and that's another thing, I don't care. I believe that I have a certain mission and I believe I can only say it like me, like everybody has, like what you're doing, man, I applaud this so much. I looked at all of the things that you're doing on, on your podcast and I went and listened to, man, I think I've listened in the last three days, probably almost everything that you have on YouTube. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, because it's just what you're doing is that important. And that is for you. I believe what's for you is for you to do. I believe that the message that I have, only I can deliver that message like I would deliver that message. And there's a place for it. So again, back to that belief, because I believe that, I'm going to find my place. When I find that place, my wife said, you know, you're putting a target on your back. I'm like, yeah, bring it. (laughs) You know, I I do know that. I I know that people are not going to appreciate it on both sides of the aisle. Um, because I'm either given too much credit or because I'm given too much leeway or because I'm too radical. But I believe if, if, if I see something and I don't say it and I know it's the truth, I'm just as bad as everybody else. Yeah. And I don't, I refuse. I refuse to be that way. Yeah. So, well, man, I I believe in you. It's truly because I think that I'm not a Christian per se, but I take pieces of all religions and I'm more Buddhist, but I, I try and, and sure. see things by all, all the aisles. What I will say is that I, I do believe those that are closest to God are closest to love. 
mm. that when when I feel love really radiating from someone, I can I can I know that God's with them very closely. So you're one of the people I've met who just radiates so much love, and the fact mm. that you come from where you come from and all your experiences, and you can still love those that hurt you so so much with that feeling, to me means that that there is some some power speaking through in a way because you're so connected to love. So um, I really believe in what you're doing. I generally do. I I hope that you take it to the to the moon. And I want to thank you so much for for coming on and and living your message with so much compassion, empathy, and love. Because again, with that coding of love, I know it's, it sounds weird, but with the coding Isn't that of, something? Yeah, with the coding of love, it just, <laughs> it, just it just lands in our hearts. So I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story, man. I appreciate that, man. Thank thank you for having me. This is I can't even to say it was an honor is an understatement. I really appreciate. Uh, the time we spent and just an opportunity to talk to you, man. Same here, man. Where where can people find you and look at your stuff? If Um, if you go to, and I'm, I'm in the process of changing over from the whole being a personal trainer thing full time. Uh, you can go to scottgsmith.com. Um, that's the easiest way. And then on Instagram, the Scott G Smith. Um, I have an old, at Coach Scott G, G-E-E is my old personal training fitness type thing. People getting with me on there too, and I eventually am able to work with them and help them, but then I always lead them to what my mission is right now. But those are the two things, the two areas that I'm building right now is um V-T-H-E, the Scott G. Smith, and then scottgsmith.com is my, um, my website. And just building links to pretty much everything from those two spots those two spots great thank you so much appreciate Appreciate you man thank you of course